Good morning, City on a Hill. It's good to, well, I started to say it's good to see all of you. Then I thought it's good to say good not to see all of you, but that's not good. It's just, I'm glad to be here and be (laughs) glad to be seen. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm glad to be seen. Uh, I'm going to have to try to do something this morning that I've never done um, uh, because I left my contact, not contacts, because I don't need two. I left my contact at home. I can't wear my eye patch, so I wear my glasses, so I have to keep the left eye closed and then try to find my notes as I look up and I look down through my glasses. I've never tried to do this before, so we're going to have a grand experiment this morning. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Revelation. That is not Revelations. It is a singular revelation of Jesus Christ in chapter 2. Because this morning we're going to begin a series through chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. The reason we're doing this, I've done this in the past before years ago, is because on Wednesday nights Derek has been teaching through the book of Revelation, not a verse-by-verse study, but kind of an overview. And a couple of weeks ago he was talking about the letters to the seven churches, and we were talking about that, and he wanted to go ahead and come back and do a little bit more in-depth on those letters. And so we just decided that we would teach through the letters to the seven churches of Revelation. The In a contextual kind of idea, the book of Revelation is what God inspired the Apostle John to write when he was exiled by the Roman government on the island of Patmos. I have actually been on the island of Patmos. It is just a big rock. It was an island that the Romans used to exile prisoners to, a little bit like they did years ago in Alcatraz off of the coast of San Francisco. It's just a big, barren rock that the Romans used. And in chapter 1 of this vision, the first thing that God does is he gives John a vision of the resurrected and the ascended Christ. And as you read that vision, it's not a physical description of a robe and of clothes and those kinds of things, but it uses analogies and just these awesome kinds of pictures that are, can really actually, as you're reading through chapter 1, be quite overwhelming and and powerful. But in this description, what God is doing is He is establishing Jesus as having all of the authority and all of the power to say and to do and to fulfill all of the things that are going to be revealed in this revelation, the things that are coming up to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so right after that introduction where you're just overwhelmed with this imagery of who Jesus really is, in chapter 2 and 3 he launches into a series of messages to seven churches. These were the seven churches of Asia Minor at that particular time is what they called it. And they were seven very well-known churches in the ancient world. And in these letters to the seven churches, what God does is He reveals to them the things that He expects of them, and He also reveals to them some things that He's not quite all that happy about, some things that He's just quite dissatisfied about. And so as we look at these letters to these churches who are real churches, we can see what it is that the Lord God desires His church to look like and to be and to do. And so this morning... What we're going to do is we're going to look at the letters and what it meant to them, but we're also going to try to understand what it means to us. Because one of the things that the letters to the seven churches of Revelation are is that they are a reminder to us 
that we can fool ourselves about who we are, and we can fool each other about who we are as individuals and as a church community, but we can never fool Jesus because He is the head of the church. And back in chapter 1, in verse 2, a part of His description that is given in this vision to John is that Jesus is the one who has eyes like the flame of fire. Now, that means He has a vision that is penetrating. The imagery of fire is of purification. He has perfect 20-20 vision. In other words, Jesus sees. He knows. He knows what is beyond the outside. He knows what is beyond what we present on the exterior. And he, leaves, he looks deep underneath that and sees the reality. And the first church that is addressed in chapter 2 is the church in the ancient city of Ephesus. We know a great deal about the starting of the Ephesus church, many things that happened in the first century. But at the time, uh, in John's time, Ephesus was a part of Greece. Today, it's in what is called modern-day Turkey. And I've had the privilege of actually being in the ancient ruins of the city of Ephesus twice in my lifetime. I've had the privilege of walking the streets where the Apostle Paul, on the very stones that the Apostle Paul walked in Acts chapter 17 and chapter 19 when he was in the city of Ephesus. And in fact, the gospel, the scripture records for us in the book of Acts, was so powerful in Ephesus that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church that was there literally turned their community all the way upside down. It got so bad that those silversmiths who, had, who made their living making the little idols of all the gods that the, the ancient Greeks worshipped, and I guess they'd put their little statues on the dashboard of their chariots, they were going broke because people were turning from false gods and they were turning from idols. And so the, the silversmiths actually started a riot to try to turn the tide in their city. So we know that in the early days, this church in Ephesus was a church that was on fire. They were on fire for Jesus, they were on fire for the gospel, and they were making an impact in their community. And so having knowing that, when we come to verse 2, Jesus says, I know. Now that's interesting. There's those flame eyes with flame of fire. You know, you can't hide from me because I know. And he does know them and, and he knows us. And so then after that, he begins to list some things that he knows about them. And so we want to look at this, yes, to understand what the scripture means and it meant to them, but also to learn from that and apply that to us. So let's talk about some things that Jesus knows. The first thing he knows is he knows that sometimes we have a tendency to leave the first thing. In verse 2, he begins, and he's, giving, he's commending them. He's saying some very good things about them. He says, he talks about their deeds. He says, they're do, you're doing good things. He talks about how they, they're toiling in the work, and they're persevering in the midst of, of trouble and persecution. And he says, they're, they're doctrinally and morally pure because they won't, they won't abide by these people that come in and say they're apostles, but they're really false apostles, and they won't even allow evil in their midst. And so we read those things, we go, man, these folks are doing pretty good. I mean, that's some pretty high praise, and they were, because they were working hard in the ministry, they were doctrinally pure, they had their doctrine down, and they were morally pure, but then we turn after that in verse 4, and he says, but this I have against you. So it's kind of the uh-oh moment, here it goes, and this is what he says. He says, 
you have left your first love. And he doesn't even explain that. He doesn't even tell us what he means by that. I don't think he needs to, given the context and everything. It's pretty easy to figure out what he's talking about. But we ask the question, well, what, what, what is that? What does it mean to have left their first love? We know from the previous things he said, it couldn't be that they'd stopped doing the work of the ministry because he says they hadn't stopped that. In fact, he commended them for it. He, 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 it wasn't that they'd left their love of doctrinal purity. No, no, they were very doctrinally pure. They didn't tolerate apostles who were false apostles. It wasn't that they'd fallen out of love with being morally pure and presenting their bodies as a living sacrifice to Christ. None of those kinds of things. In fact, these are all things that we only come to love as we grow in Christ. Those are not, doctrinal purity is not something we love the moment we come to Christ. We don't have any doctrine, most of us at that time, uh, moral purity, typically, usually there's a change in that over the course of time. So those are not things that in our initial in, in, uh, involvement in the Christian experience that we, that we can say we have love for because we don't even have those things. But there is the one thing, there is the one thing that most of us can point to that we were head over heels in love with when we first came to Christ, and that's Jesus himself. I can very well remember that. I, I didn't even know John 3.16. I mean, I didn't know anything, and I was just coming off the streets. So I certainly wasn't morally pure or any of those kinds of things. But man, when I understood the gospel and it was applied to my heart by faith, there was, there was this overwhelming of sense of love and devotion to Jesus Christ. And evidently, that's what Jesus sees as his eyes are like a flame of fire, look penetratingly deep into this church, into the hearts of the people that in all of their doing, in all of their morality, in all of their doctrine of purity, which by no means are bad things, those are good things, their love of Jesus had begun to fade. Now let's talk about that. For a moment, why is that so important? Why does he even mention this in the midst of all of these other wonderful things that any church today that is doing the things that the church in Ephesus was doing, we'd say, well, that's a church that's got it going on. That's a church that's got it together. So in the midst of all that, what makes this so important that Jesus would even mention it in this context? Because love of Jesus, folks, understand this. That first love and continuing that first love is our highest priority. Jesus himself established that. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 and 38, that very well-known text where Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment of all? And Jesus kind of puts two things together from the Old Testament. It says, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In other words, love God with everything you are and then love your neighbor as yourself. Now I want you to notice something. Loving the Lord is not the only thing. That's why Jesus commends the church in Ephesus for the other thing. It's not the only thing, but it's the first thing. It's the first thing, and it is, it, in fact, it is, it's important to love your neighbor, but first we are to love Jesus. And then the love of the neighbor is to flow out of that. And so if we're continuing to seek to love our neighbor, but we have left this first love, we are going to be increasingly more in a struggle to do the other things. Because everything else in the Christian life is to flow. It's our first priority. You remember in the Gospel of John when Jesus met after his resurrection and his, 
he met with, with, uh, with Peter. And Peter had gone back to the boats, and he was fishing. And you remember the famous story, Jesus cooking breakfast. And he says, Peter, come here. And Peter recognized who he was. And remember that Peter had denied Jesus three times. And so Peter is really, he's unsure about this thing. But what Jesus does in this encounter is that he basically is saying, Peter, I haven't given up on you. And he kind of recommissions Peter to the work. Because Peter, you know, he was, gonna, he was ready to take the world by storm of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but then he denied Jesus and all this thing fell apart. And Jesus said, no, 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 this is all part of it. Peter, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. He's recommissioning Peter and saying, Peter, I haven't given up on you. But each time before he gives that, Peter, go do this, he asks the question, Peter, do you love me? You see, Jesus is reiterating, no, Peter, there are things to do, but first, first, Peter, do you love me? You see, this is our highest priority. No matter what else we are doing, if our love, our first love for Jesus is fading, then it reduces the value and even the impact of all of those other things. So Jesus knows that, and so he calls them back to this priority, this first love. But he also knows... It also should be our highest calling because it is our unique privilege. And I want you to understand something. I'm going to say something here that is quite controversial in our, in our culture today, but I could care less about that because it's the truth of the Word of God. We who know Christ are the only ones that can have a love relationship with the true and living God. Now think about that. We who know Christ are the only ones who can have a true love relationship with the living God. You cannot love God apart from Christ. Now that is not a popular message today among people, but it is the message of the Christian faith. It is the message of the Word of God. Now that doesn't mean that we hate other people. That doesn't mean that we belittle other people. It just means that we understand there is only one way that you can have a love relationship with the Creator God, and that is through Jesus Christ, because Jesus Himself taught us that over and over and over. He said, no one can come to the Father but through me. You can't come to the Father. You can't know the Father. You can't love the Father unless you come through Him. Jesus said, you can't even know who the Father is unless the Son reveals the Father to Him. Jesus said, if you have seen the Father you have seen me. If you love me, you love the Father over and over and over. The, the message of Jesus is that God the Father has sent me to be the way, the only way to a relationship with Him. Now lots of people today talk about their love for God, but then they reject Jesus as the one and only way to God. And what the New Testament would say to that and what Jesus says to that is, well, then you can't love God without me. You cannot have a love relationship with the Creator who loves you without loving me. And that is the reason, one of many reasons, why I'm never impressed with people who do God talk. You know, you, you know God this, God, I love God, God this, God's my priority in life. It's God, God, God. Okay, God this, God that. It means nothing. I always want to narrow it down and say, what about Jesus? And when Jesus is not a part of that equation, then I just go, well, I don't know what you're talking about there, but 
the Christian faith, my faith, my Bible says you can't know God, you can't love God without coming to Him through the Lord Jesus. You see, this is our unique privilege. It's, we're the only ones in Christ with the indwelling Holy Spirit who have the capacity to actually have a love relationship with the Father God. It is our unique priority. It is our unique privilege. But second, or finally, because it is our ultimate purpose. Here's the truth. What were we created for? We were created for a love relationship with our Creator God. And that love relationship was broken as sin entered in. And so when we look at the cross, we look at the, 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 the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, come back to this. The ultimate purpose of the cross was not so you could live a happy life. It wasn't so you could get everything that you wanted from God if you just named it and claimed it. None of that stuff. No, the ultimate purpose of the cross was to make a way where we could come back into a love relationship with our Creator God. So this is, this is the ultimate purpose for which we are created. It is a relationship with Him. And so if, if that is not the priority, if it's no longer the ultimate purpose and the goal of the life of an individual or the life of a church, then something has gone wrong. Now, the church in Ephesus even illustrates this. You go back to the beginnings of the church in Ephesus, in Acts chapter 17 and Acts chapter, chapter 19, and, and you, if you read that account, you read that, man, when the gospel hit Ephesus, people's lives were drastically changed, and as I said a moment ago, it turned the ancient city of Ephesus up on its ears because people were turning away from false gods and were turning to the true God through faith in Jesus Christ, through the preaching and teaching of the gospel. And it caused a riot because all these people were turning away from the idols. But within a few years, and by the way, John was one of the apostles with Jesus. Now John is an old man, it's the latter part of the first century, and he's exiled to Patmos, but John was alive through all of this. He was alive through all of the planting of the churches of Paul on these three great missionaries' journeys and all of that. So John had witnessed all of this and he'd seen the fervor of the gospel in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and now into Asia Minor and all of those areas. Yet now Jesus is saying to the church in Ephesus through John, you've left your first love. What is that, a generation? Several decades since the church was started in Acts, since the church was birthed through the preaching of the gospel in Ephesus. And now by the time that John is on the island here, in the latter days of his life, granted, already they've pulled away from that first love that Jesus is calling them back to. Now how does that happen? How does that happen? Well, let me give you a spiritual law. It comes in two parts. A command and a reality. The first one, the first part is a command, love Christ, okay? That is our command from the Lord God, love Jesus. The second part is in the reality, love leaks. Love Jesus, but love leaks. And that's true virtually of everything in our world. 
anything, virtually anything that's left alone doesn't get better. It atrophies. It goes backwards. It leaks. Right? I mean, you think about your yard. You leave your yard alone, it doesn't get better. It gets worse. You think about your marriage. If you don't, if you don't nurture that, your love in your marriage doesn't get better. It, it, it goes back. Virtually everything in the world requires attention because love leaks. Second law of thermodynamics, it absolutely is. Refuge Ranch recently, uh, we rerouted the stream that feeds the main lake that is in front of the house. Those of you that have been out there, you know there's a two or three acre lake that's right in front of the house. But we wanted to expand that all the way around on the eastern side, and, and so we had to reroute that water so that all this air would dry out there so we could start digging with the equipment. And over the court, it turned in about three months ago that we actually rerouted that thing, and and we didn't know it was going to take that long, but over the course of time of rerouting the stream that was feeding the main lake, the lake didn't stay the same. As a matter of fact, it receded about a foot. It has, it has lost about a foot of its water. And we didn't do anything to cause that to happen. We didn't siphon water out of that. All we did, now get this, all we did is we stopped feeding it. We took its source of continuing nourishment from that little creek and we rerouted it away and it naturally began to lose depth. Everything in life is like that. Once we stop feeding it, it recedes because it leaks. It's true of our spiritual lives. It's true of our love for Christ. And in Ephesus, evidently, what happened was they didn't stop doing the work of the ministry. They didn't fall away out of their doctrinal purity. They didn't fall away from their moral purity. But somehow or another, they stopped feeding their passionate love for Christ, and slowly it began to leak away. And Jesus knows that. He says, I know this. I know this, that you have left your first love. And I wonder... For you as an individual, for us as a church collectively, this is to all of us, if Jesus was going to say something to us, what would he say? Would he say, oh man, you're, you're working hard in the work, you're doing good things, you're living a good and moral life, but would he look beneath and say, but this one thing, you've left your first love. In all of the doing, you shut the stream off. You didn't continue to focus on the most important thing. Now that's my part. And Derek gets to come and bring the fire now because there's another thing that Jesus knows. He knows that sometimes we get distracted from that priority by other things. One of the questions that immediately comes up, and, and James just really, that, that last point is so important about love, love for Jesus leaking. How does our love for Jesus leak how do we get to that point? That seems unimaginable, unthinkable. If I'm a Christian, I love Jesus, I love the Lord, how does my love for him leak? It happens in part by being distracted by other things. Now often, I want to just preface this by saying that oftentimes the things that we get distracted by are not bad things. In fact, oftentimes they are very good things. They're not meant to be the first things, however. That's the problem. We, we read, James read it in verse 4, I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. But, but once again, if you go back and read the, the two verses before that, there were a lot of things they were doing the right way. They, were, they had a lot of things to be commended for in those verses. They just lost sight of Jesus in the process. And, and here's a, a kind of a, a general principle 
When you lose sight of Jesus, you lose what is good. You cannot have good things in your life when Jesus is not a part of them. Jesus is the ultimate source of what is good. Things that start as good, in other words, when they fall outside of the parameters of Jesus, they become caricatures of themselves. You know what a caricature is, right? When, when uh, you have a kind of cartoon drawing of someone where some of the features become uh, way over-exaggerated and then some of the features are almost completely gone, completely missing. The, the things that start as good in our lives, when they fall outside of the parameter of our love for Jesus, they become caricatures of themselves. And, and so this is what happens when we get distracted by those things, when we lose sight of the first love. There are two ways, and and we're going to just get really practical here this morning, there are two ways that I see the church becoming distracted in 2020. There are a lot of, obviously, ways that that the church has historically been distracted, uh, various different ways that that plays itself out, but I want to get very down to the nuts and bolts of this this morning, where the rubber hits the road. I want to be upfront about this. If I step on your toes this morning, hear my heart I mean no offense to that. If the Holy Spirit comes after you, that is his prerogative, not mine. I need to hear this as much as you do. But there are two ways that we get distracted from our first love. Here's the first one. When we pursue truth without love. When we pursue truth without love. Let me ask you a question. Christians should always pursue truth, correct? Hopefully you are shaking your head yes at home. I can't see you. I'm on a TV, right? But I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you are amening right now. We are told as Christians, as Christ followers, that we are first to love objective truth. In other words, the truth that comes from the Word of God, God's revealed truth to us in the Bible. But even beyond that, we are also to pursue what I would call general truth, right? Truth about the way things are happening in the world. We're told to be truthful in our dealings with one another, to not be deceptive, to to be transparent, to be uh, vulnerable, to have integrity. We're to be interested in the truth of things. We're not to be blinded by the lies of Satan. I mean, this is all throughout the New Testament when you read Paul's letters. In other words, we should be discerning, alert, aware of the world around us. And there's a lot of ways that this plays out, but there's one that comes to mind because it's, it's a major issue right now in the world. You cannot get on social media without seeing something about it in, in almost every post. And that is uh, th- this idea of what's happening right now with COVID-19. Uh, this is a confusing time, is it not? Am I right about that? Everyone, I think, if, if, if we're being honest, we're a little confused about what we're supposed to think. What is the truth of what is happening right now with COVID-19? There are some doctors, medical professionals, who are uh, 100% for masks. They do not think that certain medicines, hydroxychloroquine is the big one right now. Uh, they, they are ER doctors usually treating the worst cases of it, and so they're not seeing great results from it, so they're speaking out against it. Uh, if, if, if you don't wear a mask, in their mind, you're being irresponsible to the people around you. But then on the other side, you have these other doctors, and, and they think hydroxychloroquine is great. It's, a, it's a, it nearly a cure when it's used in the early stages of the virus. They think that while COVID is serious, it's being way overblown. And so here's what happens. We as people of God, just like anyone else in the world, we are forced to choose who to believe because we're not professionals. So who do we believe? Do we believe these people or do we believe these people? And and, and here's the problem is that not all of the people of God are going to choose the same thing. And so the people of God end up 
in two different camps with regard to this stuff. And then there's this whole spectrum of people in between who fall somewhere in between these two camps as well. So if you're in the first camp, you wear a mask. Uh, People who don't are the problem. Forget about COVID-19. They're not even the issue. It's the people who won't wear the mask that are the problem, right? The economy is going down the toilet. There are people dying. And it's not the virus. It's their fault because they're not doing what medical professionals are saying. But then you have people in the second camp, and, and, and you reject the masks. You think they're trying to brainwash you and lead you down a path into whatever, and, and people who wear them are blind, and, and hydroxychloroquine is the cure. Why are we even arguing about this? And everyone in these camps are pursuing general truth. And there are two problems with this. One is that oftentimes they don't know the objective truth to begin with. There are a lot of biblically illiterate Christians today in the world. This is one of the reasons why James and I always come back to the text. That's why we're always saying to you, man, get in a Bible study. Get into a, a, a community group that is centered around Scripture and begin to learn God's Word. Bible study matters. You will hear me say this till the day that I die. Get into a Bible study because there's a principle here. I want you to hear this. Hear this. You can't discern truth in the world if you haven't learned truth from the Scripture. You can't discern general truth in the world if you haven't learned objective truth from the Scripture. Your whole mindset, your whole worldview, your whole framework will be out of whack if you have not committed yourself to the study of God's Word. You end up with Christians saying some bonkers things about the way the world is working because their biblical understanding is so elementary that they... they, They can't understand. You can't discern these things. So that's the first one. But then the second one is, it comes back to this kind of first overall point, we've been pursuing truth without love. So James just talked a moment ago about how we are to love God and love our neighbor. And and we never want to violate the first love in lieu of the second one. but, But alternatively, what we do is we pursue truth trying to honor God, and oftentimes we dishonor our brother or sister in the process. And this is another massive problem. Love for one another, and I'm talking about the church right now. I'm not talking about the world. The, this whole, these letters are to the churches in Revelation. Uh, Jesus is talking to believers here, so I am speaking to you as believers. I'm not talking about your lost friends. I'm talking to you, the Christian. Jesus says, John 13, 34 and 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, check this out, all people, that means the people outside of the church, will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So let me ask you a question. This is a good diagnostic question for you this morning. When non-believers look at your life, when they look at the things that you talk about, post about on social media, do they get the idea that you have love for other believers. In other words, by seeing the way you interact with other individuals online, is your love for other Christians so apparent that non-believers look at you and go, they must be a follower of Jesus? If not, we are in error. We are in error. Let me ask you this, and once again, this is a question for the church. What is the purpose of truth? That seems like a kind of philosophical question, and it's going to become very practical. What is the point of truth? What is truth supposed to accomplish for us? There is a purpose for truth, and that purpose, here it is, is unity. 
It's to unify. It divides in the world, but it unifies in the body. Truth is meant to unite, in other words. Ephesians 4, 11 through 14, Paul says, talking about the church, he gave to the church the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain, to check this out, the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. In other words, God has given gifts to the church to bring truth, to clarify truth that would unify us around it rather than divide us that we may not easily be taken captive by all the crap out there. And then look at verse 15. This is what he says. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So check this out. Truth not only unifies, it sanctifies. It not only unifies us around the purposes of God for his people, but it it transforms us into his image more and more. And there's another principle here. I don't want you to miss this. It's subtle. You've got to get this. It's not just believing the truth that makes me more like Jesus, but also how I communicate it. Notice what he says. Speaking the truth in love. It's not just believing the truth of God, but, but it is how I communicate truth in general. This is what this looks like, Ephesians 4.29. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Here's how this works. Let me get practical. You pursue truth, whether it's objective truth in the word of God or, or more typically general truth in the world, and as you discover it, you talk about it. And and as you see other people say things that you discern are not true, the the tendency is to want to correct that. I know the truth. You don't. Let me correct you, right? This is how we are wired up. But let me ask you a question. When you have these conversations with people, are you building up those who are hearing it? Does it give grace to those who hear it, as Paul says? Does it bring unity, or does it seek to further divide? And again, not talking about non-believers. They're going to be divided by the truth. I'm talking about the church, disagreements in the church. So come back for a moment to this discussion about COVID. When you have discussions about this virus, does your correcting unite the people of God or or seek to, to unite? It's not always going to unite, but does it seek to unite the people of God or does it seek to further divide. Because here's the deal. If your pursuit of truth prevents other people from finding it, then you're not seeking the truth. You're seeking to win an argument. And that, folks, is when the pursuit of truth becomes a distraction from our first love. You see, when, when I when I am seeking truth in love, it's very difficult for this to become a distraction in my life. Because my pursuit of truth is, is, is done for the sole purpose of trying to bring unity to the people of God around me that I may love them, the world may know that I am his disciple. That becomes the whole goal. That becomes the whole purpose. Jesus says, I have this against you that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. Have we been distracted in this way? Have we lost sight of our love for our brothers in pursuit of truth? That's the first way we get distracted. Secondly, When you promote justice without humility, we're going to just keep hitting big topics right now. Justice is a big topic right now. 
And rightfully so, right? There's lots of, of, of calls for justice, and, and, and it is very needed. Racial injustice has been a big topic, a much-needed topic, a conversation that the church absolutely needs to be having. Justice for children in sex trafficking. Every day there are stories coming out about people in very high positions being busted for these this horribly evil and horrific sex trafficking rings. Justice for abused women. Battered women. Justice is needed in a lot of ways. And as it turns out, the scripture speaks a lot to this. Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good? And what does Yahweh require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Isaiah 1, 17 is, is, is one where I, I want to spend a little bit of time this morning because I think it is really going to get at the point of where we're going. Isaiah 1, 17 begins with a command. He says, learn to do good. And then check this out. He says, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. The fatherless and the widow, by the way, in the Old Testament are, are kind of a way of, of and capturing everybody who is unable to, to speak or act on their own, right? In other words, what he's saying is speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. Act on behalf of those who cannot act for themselves. Don't ignore this. The people of God are meant to do this. But here's the kicker, because this, man, social justice warriors love this, Right? Find a Bible verse that talks about justice, and yeah, see, God says he wants us to, so let's hit the streets and let's do it. But what does it say right before that? Verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. This is God speaking, by the way. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Now, these new moons and these feasts, these are, these are festivals that God himself commanded the people to have. They were his idea. And he's like, stop. Enough with the festivals. I'm done. I hate them. Go on to verse 15. This one's the really scary one. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. He's saying when you go to pray, when you put your hands together to pray, I'm going to turn away. And when you begin to cry out for my name, I'm going to shut my ears. I, I was thinking this week about this. You know, my, I have three kids, uh, seven-year-old, six-year-old, and, and three-year-old, all girls. And, uh, and, and they play at night. Typically, right before bedtime is when they become the most unruly because they're tired. You know, it's, it, they're just, they've kind of become delirious at that point. And it's when they get the wildest as well. And, and, and so the other night I was thinking about this. They were, they were chasing around one another in the house. And there's a rule in my home. You don't run in my home. It's a rule often broken by my three precious daughters. Right? So they're, they're running around, and, they're, and I'm like, y'all got to stop running. I'm telling you, you got to stop running. And I'm, I'm kind of wrapping my stuff up, getting ready to put them to bed. Well, one of them kind of falls down and gets hurt. Right? And they come in, and Daddy, you know, my, my, the little egos are hurt is really the problem. They're not really actually that hurt. But Daddy, I, you know, I hurt my leg, or Daddy, she pushed me down. And I'm always like, no, I'm not listening. No, I told you not to do that. I'm not even going to hear it right now. Go to your room. And I imagine that's how God feels in, in, in this passage. Like, Lord, but Lord, we're, right? And he's just like, stop. I'm not even going to listen to it right now. Verse 16, he goes on. He says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. In other words, he's saying humble yourself. And in this case, repent. Take a long, hard look 
and the mirror. And once you've put off the pride, once you've washed yourself, that's ritual language, by the way, ceremonial uh, cleansing language from the Old Testament. Then, after you've done that, verse 17, learn to do good, seek justice, uh, uh, correct oppression. You can't do verse 17 without the verses before it. We like to just land on verse 17 and, and roll with it. And, and, and here's the, the problem. There are a lot of Christians who want this, and rightfully so. Praise God for that. They want justice, yes. They seek to correct oppression. Praise God for that. These are good things, but have we become so distracted by them that we forgot to look in the mirror ourselves? Have you humbled yourself? This is why several weeks ago, let me just be honest with you. Uh, several weeks ago, James and I made a petition to our church, we're not even speaking to other people, we're just this is talking to the city on a hill body of believers, that if you are a white person, to just for a moment stop sharing your opinion and listen to the people in this church of color. We were not white shaming. We were not asking you to make reparations. We were not asking for apologies. This isn't critical race theory or mock Marxism. These are biblical concepts. Stop talking and listen. It's proverbial. We were calling for humility, empathy, understanding. Why? Because it's never a good idea to promote justice without humility. God does not want to hear your dumb, th prideful thoughts. He doesn't want to hear my dumb, prideful thoughts. He wants us broken before him, humbled before him, willing to repent, willing to look in the mirror first. You see, when I'm humble, it's very hard for me to be distracted by this. Why? Because humility draws me back to the gospel. The gospel says, apart from God's mercy, I am just as guilty as the people I am against the ones who are perpetuating injustice and oppression. I'm just like them, apart from God's mercy. That's the declaration of the gospel. The gospel says we all deserve justice. The gospel brings mercy to the humble. You see, I can't affect change on my own. I cannot change the world on my own, but the gospel can. And apart from the gospel, justice just becomes revenge. And God doesn't want that from you either. You see, sometimes we leave the first thing, our first love, which is Jesus. We walk away from this because we've become distracted by other things. And those things are not always bad things. They're often very good things. Seeking truth is a good thing. Promoting justice, these are biblical concepts. But we have to keep coming back to them and, and, and having a little bit of a gut check to ask ourselves, are we doing them with Christ and the gospel in mind, or have I stepped outside of the parameters of Jesus and have these things just become a caricature of themselves? Because truth without love is not truth, nor is it God-honoring. Justice without humility is not justice, nor is it God-honoring. But when I do so in light of the gospel, then, it, it brings me to this last point. We, we, we come back to the first thing. We must always come back to the first thing. Simply put, I, I have to recenter myself. And, and let me just say this. If the Holy Spirit is, is bringing conviction to you this morning, I, I want to say this to you. Don't stop pursuing truth and promoting justice. Don't stop doing those things. Just do it in light of Jesus and his great gospel. Rather than arguing with people, invite them. Invite them to the foot of the cross with you, where, where everyone stands on level ground, where you are no different than the worst of the worst in this world. Because apart from God's grace, you're just like them. 
Invite them to the only one who can speak truth because he is the way and the truth and the life. Don't simply promote justice, but proclaim grace. Humility and repentance lead to grace. That if you bow before Jesus, you don't receive justice, but you get mercy. This is what the world needs to hear, and this is what the church needs to be reminded of. Have we been distracted by these things? Have we been distracted? If we have, we must come back to Jesus, our first love. He is asking us, what will our response be? Let's pray. Father, how we, uh, wow, we thank you for just a, a, an incredible challenge and a reminder that so much of what we seek to do that is good can often be turned bad when it's done outside of, of how you would have us do them. When we forsake loving you, it's a problem, but when we forsake loving others in pursuit of you, it's, it's equally a problem. It's why you said to love God and your neighbor. What a difficult but important challenge that is for us. I pray that you would, uh, you would bring a sense of reassurance to your people here, that those who, um, who have been convicted by this are, are, are not feeling a sense of condemnation. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but a sense of, of conviction that leads to, to repentance and, and continued pursuit of these good things that you've put on our hearts. We look forward to this series, Lord, of looking at what you have said to these churches and how so much of what you say to these seven churches just as much applies to us today. Thank you for this, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you guys very much. We really look forward to this new series, uh, and we can't wait to hopefully begin live streaming, as I said, at the welcome on August 23rd, assuming there are no hiccups. Uh, we'll open registration that, that first week uh, on Monday before that Sunday, and uh, uh, we will have a cap. You will be required to wear a mask. We'll do temperature checks. For those of you who want to stay at home, of course, it will stay the same, uh, but, but looking forward to exploring these letters with you. God bless you. We'll see you next time.